Hello, I'm Zev Newirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm delighted to welcome back to this podcast, Dr. Don Berwick. We'll be covering a broad range of topics such as the social determinants of health, the issues of disparities and inequities in healthcare delivery, the issue of racism in healthcare, and the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare delivery. I think what Dr. Berwick will bring to the discussion today are his unique perspectives on getting to the core of how we must understand and what we must do to address the actual causes of health, illness, injury, and disability. Dr. Berwick is President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, an organization that he co-founded and led as President and CEO for 18 years. He is one of the world's leading authorities on healthcare quality and improvement. In July 2010, President Obama appointed Dr. Berwick to the position of Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid CMS, which he held until December 2011. Dr. Berwick's body of work and contributions to the field of quality and safety in healthcare are profound and probably unparalleled. Dr. Berwick, through the research he led, contributed greatly to the landmark 2001 uh, Institute of Medicine report, Crossing the Quality Chasm, as well as the Institute of Medicine's report to Air is Human. These are classic, seminal pieces of work in the field. He is a recipient of numerous awards. In 2005, he was appointed Honorary Knight Commander of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. This is the highest honor awarded by the UK to non-British subjects in recognition of his work with the British National Health Service. Dr. Berwick is the author or co-author of over 160 scientific articles and six books. A pediatrician by background, he has served as clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at the Harvard Medical School, professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health, and as a member of the staffs of the Boston Children's Hospital, the Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Folks, I, I don't know how to say this any other way, but my respect and admiration for Dr. Berwick is unbounded. He is a leader amongst leaders in healthcare. Uh, I believe one of the greatest humanitarians and transformational agents uh, I've ever encountered. Uh, I really believe is an example for all of us, especially now at this critical inflection point in the history of healthcare in our country. Without further ado, uh, let's drop into the interview uh, we conducted earlier today with uh, Dr. Berwick. So Don, welcome to Creating a New Healthcare. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Zev. It's nice to be back with you. Well, thanks. I had constructed a whole series of questions and sort of an arc uh, of a narrative. And, and then I went back and reread some of your recent articles in JAMA and uh, New England Journal and in the New York Times, uh, an opinion piece. And I, I have to say, I'm scrapping all my questions and I really want to focus on uh, what you wrote about in particularly these two articles that really uh, grip me. They are, in my mind, seminal. They are landmark articles I have not read uh, in quite some time. I can't even recall 
any articles that were as practical and practically humanitarian as these two pieces. The first is The Moral Determinants of Health that you published in JAMA on July 21st of 2020. That's volume 324. And the other is titled Choices for the New Normal, also in JAMA uh, in June, on June 2nd, and that's uh, volume 323. Let's begin with Choices for the New Normal, in which, to my mind, you really reframe our thinking about some of the questions people have been asking about COVID-19 in terms of the new normal and what's going to happen and predictions. And you really shift us to thinking from prediction to intention and from chances to choices. So I would love to just ask the open-ended question in a moment. How did you come to actually make that sort of reframe and what your purpose is and what you're hoping? But, But I'd like to begin by just reading a sentence from it. You wrote, no one can say with certainty what the consequences of this pandemic will be in six months, let alone six years or 60. But at this early stage, it is more honest to frame the new post-COVID-19 normal, not as predictions, but as a series of choices. So tell us what you were trying to share with us. What were you trying to teach with this and what kind of direction are you giving us here? Well, first, Seb, thanks for the very, very kind uh, comments. I really, I really, it means a lot to me. I appreciate it. The original invitation came from the editor of JAMA. I'm on the JAMA Journal Oversight Committee. Uh, Howard Balkner asked if I would write an article predicting what's going to happen post-COVID, the, the new normal. But it took me not long to realize, I, I just don't know. We are living in such a time of uncertainty. And But the more I thought about it, the more I, uh, it, it became clear to me that that the COVID pandemic is kind of forcing us into non-traditional behaviors and processes that open the door to possibilities or to bad things. And that uh, I I think we're, at least for me, we're better off uh, trying to assert some agency here and, and, and understand that this accelerated change does give us a chance to kind of, I guess, keep or toss, you know, that, that we can build on this or we can go back. So someone sent me a note saying uh, the new normal and uh, question mark, normal is what got us here. <laughs> and I guess that is, that was kind of a motivating idea. So anyway, I laid out these kind of six areas rather arbitrarily where I think we actually are being presented by this horrible tragedy with some choices about how we're going to craft the future, not just healthcare, but, but the future of our communities. Yeah, I'll just read off the six, what you call six properties of care for durable change. Uh, The first is uh, the speed of learning. And you talk about how that's changed dramatically. Uh, Then you talk about the value of standards, compelling. And then you talk about protecting the workforce and then virtual care and then uh, preparedness for threats. And the final one, which I do want to spend some time on is inequity. Do you want to pick one or two of those and share with us your thoughts on why you picked that and why it's important? Um, well, uh, the first two about uh, speed and standards, this relates very strongly to my own work for decades now on quality of care. You know, we, we tend to hold on to the status quo even when it isn't serving us well. And so as new processes develop, healthcare is pretty slow to adapt to adopt them. Uh, that's partly a, a kind of... Uh, slow pace, but it's also, a, it's a lack of curiosity about what the real standards ought to be. And so COVID changed that in, in the COVID context. Anyway, as I point out in the article, the 
the rate at which uh, both information and innovation were uh, speeding around the globe stunned me. I had the privilege of working uh, globally. I, I, I got involved with a number of uh, international uh, listservs and social media relationships. Uh, and I watched um, journals speed up their publication. I watched the National Academy of Medicine speed up its ability to issue evidence-based um, ideas uh, and advice. I watched um, in England, the National Health Service set up the uh, 2,900-bed intensive care unit crafted from a conference center in three weeks. Um, I watched uh, intensive care doctors all over the the United States and the planet in touch with each other to find things out. This this is a, a new tempo. It's a, it can be dangerous if we are not prudent. We're seeing that right now, actually, in our rather uh, ill-considered um, policies around uh, speed of, of use of medicines or even potentially a vaccine before we really know what they do. But uh, approach with temperance and with science, this is a big change. And then that the standards one is, uh, you know, there's this canonical uh, almost combat or debate between clinicians who are uh, quite understandably grasping for or claiming the right to autonomy. I, mean, I do it my way and not, I don't care how anyone else does this. And uh, an approach that says, well, there is, there might be such a thing as best scientific standard. And that that's produced quite a bit of tension in the field. What I saw in the COVID world is uh, clinicians without any hesitation, reaching for standards, trying to find out what's the best way to do this. How do we prone a patient? How do we manage the ventilator? What do we do about use of steroids? On and on with a curiosity and an authenticity looking for the best that I thought was just quite thrilling. We can keep that, which would help a lot to reduce unwarranted variation in healthcare in the future. Or we could return back to, I guess, the romance of autonomy, clinical autonomy, which I do believe in also, but it's got to be in balance. Uh, we'll talk, I think, later on in this interview about the the equity issue. That that really is home turf now for the debates we have to have. Uh, and I thought the another interesting area is virtual care. Uh, you know, I was speaking a couple of weeks ago to a community health center director who moved. They moved from five percent virtual to ninety five percent virtual care in uh, in in a week. And of course, we're seeing that all over the world now as we learn the potential for uh, digital care. Uh, virtual visits um, to replace uh, what may turn out to be uh, less necessary face-to-face -face contact than we thought. And I think the news is generally pretty good there. I myself had to have a clinical encounter, a rather complex one, um, a couple of weeks ago, and the hospital called me and said, would you rather do this virtually? I said, sure, I would. And it was great. It was just as, it's probably smoother than if I'd had to walk in the building to find my way around and see three different people. Let's shift over to the issue of inequity. And you wrote a second article, which I think maybe uh, overlaps in terms of the inequity issue, is called the, the Moral Determinants of Health, which, again, when I first picked it up that week, I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God, this is such an amazing, in my terms, my way of thinking, such an amazing reframe of the social determinants of health that really takes it to a different level that I think is, is in many ways much more honest and truthful uh, and gets at, at sort of the heart of the issue and maybe creates something more actionable. But I'm, you know, I'd love for you to open up the issue of the moral determinants of health and the issue of inequity together, if you could. Sure. Um, well, in the article, the moral determinants of health, um, I kind of went on a limb, but I got there through kind of logical sequence of thinking that I just found 
uh, inescapable. So, okay, go back to the COVID scene. We, everyone probably by now knows the data that uh, communities of color, people of color, people who are isolated and, uh, and at disadvantage are dying of COVID at a substantially higher rate than the rest, uh, the rest of us. Uh, for African-Americans, it's somewhere between two and a half and four times the rate, depending on which study we look at for Latinos, pretty much the same. Uh, Native Americans are bearing a tremendous burden. Uh, so inequity in access to the benefits of communities is playing out in deaths and burden. Um, this is no surprise at all. I mean, I like you, Zev, I've spent a good deal of my uh, academic career uh, trying to understand the causes of illness and and um, ill health. I, I'm a devotee of the work of Sir Michael Marmot, who wrote a book that I'd recommend to your listeners called The Health Gap. Now, Marmot's book, The Health Gap, written in 2015, is kind of a, it's just a masterful digest and summary of what's known about social determinants of health, and it lays it all out in, in six categories of social determinants. The experience of early childhood, the education system, the workplace, um, the way we deal with older adults, um, uh, community infrastructures, but but when he analyzes the data, and the data are copious, uh, he, he Marmot asserts it all comes down to what he calls fairness, which is that if you want to have one lever in a society, one aspect that will predict uh, what well-being, how long we live, how healthy the population is, you, you look at a a sense of solidarity or or caring for each other, and a sense of fairness, which when people are at disadvantage, the more advantaged people help them. He thinks that's a root source of success in of favorably dealing with the social determinants. So right now, we're, that's since that's science. That's 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 fact. You can debate it, but look at the data, and I think you have to arrive at the same conclusion. <clears throat> but but that started me thinking. Well, look, we've known that. There's no surprise. COVID's not a surprise in its inequitable distribution of, of suffering. Any anybody, even an amateur epidemiologist like me, could have told you before COVID ever arrived that people of disadvantage will get hit harder. So, and when COVID's not here, hopefully we'll get back to that sometime. They're still at disadvantage. Uh, lifespan differences across a city in this country can be between 10, 15, 18 years between West Chicago and the Loop. A 16-year difference in life expectancy in New York between the South Bronx and Midtown Manhattan, at least a 10-year difference in life expectancy. And these are, this massive, massive difference is is attributable to the conditions of life, the ones that Michael Marmot and others have called the social determinants. We know that and we know what to do. If early childhood experience helps determine our health status, invest in children, especially children who find themselves in disadvantaged population uh, circumstances. If, uh, if, security uh, in food and housing matter, then provide end hunger and end homelessness. We know, we know how to do these things, but we don't. This country is deeply underinvested in these social determinants, deeply. Uh, compared to other OECD countries, we put less than half the money that, that they do into providing social supports. And I think even rhetorically, we are a little bit reluctant to make the commitments of solidarity and mutuality and community development that we find in countries that have higher, far higher health status than we do. Well, we can treat it as a political problem, and it surely is. There are people in policy who just don't 
believe we should do this investment. I don't know what the belief systems generally are. I think they have to do with market theories or other, other ideas, but we've had trouble recruiting the resources and the resources have to come from either a more generous public policy or redistribution of uh, our three and a half trillion dollars of healthcare expense somewhere back into social determinants. It would cost something like a hundred billion dollars a year to end hunger and homelessness in this country. Um, that's, that's, a rather small fraction of three and a half trillion dollars, but we don't do it. So I kept trying to think about it. And finally, I just decided to go to a a different ground, the ground of ethics and morality, because what I'm asserting in that paper is only by checking our morals, the values we truly believe in, are we going to find the energy, political and economic energy, social energy to address the social determinants? That's a very big ask. And it's pretty high, you know, it's sort of stiff-necked because, you know, but I think it's right. I think if we're going to help people who are vulnerable, we have to find the moral compass to do that. That led me into some really unfamiliar space. And that article lays out what I call a campaign for the moral determinants of health. Because if you really believe this, you really believe that we have to think about disadvantage and and tackling disparities of all types – uh, number one, it means healthcare has to do it. We can't be the only agent, but you can't occupy 18% of the gross domestic product and take a pass on these problems. Not to mention the gravitas that physicians and other clinicians have with the public. We, we, I, I stop buying the idea that healthcare is not responsible for the social determinants. We have to be. We have to take responsibility jointly with others, but we have to assert ourselves. That campaign that I proposed laid out some agendas for healthcare which I know make my friends and colleagues nervous, but they include unequivocal declaration and investment in the human rights regime of the world. The United States has stood aside in signing key human rights treaties for decades now. We haven't signed the Convention on the Right of Children, on migrant workers, on women. Uh, we are alone, alone, and that needs to stop. And and the the one the most pertinent human right is the declaration that we need to make that health care is a human right. And again, we are the only Western democracy that hasn't done that. I think it's time unequivocally healthcare is a human right. I think we need to deal with threats to health that are massive and global and require us to act with a, a sense of citizenship in the world, climate change being perhaps the most egregious right now. We've stood aside on the Paris Accord, but we need, if you, if we haven't begun to see, the psychiatric and physical and economic dislocation that climate change is going to bring us. And we've got to be party to the change. I've mentioned hunger and homelessness. We have 40 million people in this country in food insecurity. There are 114,000 children, according to the New York Times, in the New York City public school system who, are home, who, who don't have stable housing. And yet we, we, we walk past it. We don't, we don't address it. Um, I think we need to deal with the problem of immigration. Uh, I'm sick and tired of the abuse that we're foisting on people at our southern border, people whose worst sin is they just want to be in our country, separating parents from children. That's just not okay. I think we we need to deal with our criminal justice system. Um, 2.2 million people, mostly people of color, largely people of color, incarcerated, Seventy uh, percent have mental health or substance abuse problems, and we have the worst functioning 
prison system, perhaps in the Western, among Western democracies, certainly by far, by far the highest rate of incarceration. And it's racism. It's, it's the new Jim Crow. It's, it's modern form of lynching is locking up people of color uh, for whom we need to create other pathways, other ways of helping them. And then finally is uh, the undercutting of democratic institutions, including agencies with this attack on science right now we're seeing in our government. We, we have to say no. We have to, it is not moral to uh, use magic as a basis for public investment or trying to help people. That's, that's, if our industry doesn't stand, stand for anything at all, it has to stand for science in support of well-being. And that means voting. Uh, the voting turnout rates for physicians are embarrassingly low. And this is a year in which I think we need to commit to, to 100% turnout. Uh, so the, 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 it's kind of this logic chain that I, I sometimes feel I have to apologize for because it gets into this unfamiliar terrain. But if we care about health, we have to care about each other. If we care about each other, that's got to be reflected in our social policies. And if it's not reflected in our social policies, our moral compass says it has to be. And I think that's on us. I applaud you for just your intellectualism, but also your courage in, in going where it took you. You were raising points that I think it will raise questions in people's minds. And, you know, one of which is the issue of healthcare as a human right. And I guess my question is, I, first, first of all, just to be out there with it, I, I completely agree with you. I've never seen it any other way. I've never understood it any other way, but that's, that's a belief uh, more than anything else. Again, we, you know, if you were to debate that point, I mean, where is the, the statute? Where is the human right? Where, where is it embedded? And I'm asking this quite honestly out of ignorance. We could turn to the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and the human rights conventions that the global community has agreed to back all the way back to the post-World War II era, and it's there. It's written there. In our um, constitution and founding, uh, you know, we had some problems with human rights in our founding. We, we, you know, we, we put slavery into our constitution, and there's some repair work to do there in terms of our statutory and constitutional foundations, but I do believe that the basic idea of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness must involve the infrastructures, of a, a right to, to a decent level of the infrastructures that allow life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that includes health. And if healthcare, if we believe in healthcare as a source of uh, the ability for human talent to be realized, I think it is certainly contemplated in those in our founding. It is in every other country. And so we'd have to be very exceptional to say, no, we're the only country, the only developed democracy on earth in which that's not the case, that healthcare is not a human right. And I, I, I just want to say, come on, what, do you think that? There is pushback, uh, common pushback. Number one is, well, you know, is that limitless? You know, how do we know how much healthcare? Well, any th affirmative right to clean air or, or to, to safe streets always involves judgments about how much, how clean, how safe. We don't get out of that trouble, but we, we can tackle it. We can, we can make a decision about that. Right now, our decision is, sorry, you're out of it. You're, we don't include you, 30 million Americans or the others that, for whom the insurance coverage is ridiculously poor. Um, I'm not persuaded by that pushback. Economists think that it's a formula for breaking the bank, you know, that you kind of create this public good and everyone abuses it. I don't, I don't let's have a little more trust in people and in the public uh, than that. And that's phenomenologically not what happens in countries that make healthcare human rights. So I, 
I've, I've just been unpersuaded by the, uh, by the pushback. And by the way, there are a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that's true. It's not a question of whether, but how. Okay, if you believe that, what's your how? How, how are you going to get to that? But, but we get stuck and people get left out and it's enough. It's time to end that. Yeah, I think it's unethical. The other question that your article raises for me, and I wrote this in the space in between the columns, was are we, uh, and I think there was something you wrote here, actually you wrote this, a difficult question follows, ought the health professions and their institutions take on this redirection to use a recent vernacular, what is healthcare's lane, in quotes? And next to that, I wrote, are we a clinical care system or a healthcare system? And I, I guess you call that question in my mind. I think that providers and administrators, I think the healthcare system actually somehow believes it's a clinical care system. Yeah, say more about that. Uh, yeah, this is the pushback that's been uh, most clearly um, and carefully articulated uh, to my claim. It's that it's outside our swim lane. You know, we're here to really take the people uh, as they are. They come to us uh, in their forms of suffering, and we tr- we try to relieve their suffering. And we don't look to policy, politics, or too far outside that corral. And I, I think that's a that's definitely a colorable argument. I, I, I could I could understand why people are making it. I just I don't think it's realistic anymore. And and some of the reasons are first, even at the individual level, any clinician who works with populations that are stressed knows that housing and food and violence and uh, substance abuse and the creators of deaths of despair, to use Angus Deaton and Ann Case's term, uh, they know we're there anyway. We have to be figuring out how to help people with the things that make them sick. Otherwise, we're just running a repair shop. And that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense personally, clinically, even for the individual. You go to bat for them. And that includes when they're hungry, find food. So I I would claim there's a redefinition of the professional task for, for most of us in the profession. But beyond that, you got to look at the economics here. We are uh, 18% of the GDP, three and a half trillion dollars. I think the second largest employer industry in, in, in the country. Um, and, and you watch our government, state and federal and local governments, uh, bend under the burden of carrying the health care costs. They, they don't have the money left over to secure housing and food and safety in the streets the way it should be, you know, with a just and compassionate social justice system. Where are they going to get the funds? We've taken them. And at 18% of GDP, we are near, as you know, nearly double the next most expensive country. We know the levels of waste in that. And yet this industry continues to clutch its current revenues. And that's just not going to work. We need a different attitude and a different sense of participation and the use of those resources for the restoration of health. I think we have to become a health system, not just a healthcare system. And, and again, that we have to do that. It, it's not also, it's, it's not someone else doing it. It's we have to take that on. And I know how uncomfortable that is. I, I deal with hospital clinical leaders all the time and say, gee, you know, really, I'm so tired. We're working so hard. Our beds are so full. But we have to find a way through that. I, I just don't think healthcare can stand aside. There's another pushback, which is that we have no special expertise. People have written in in response to that paper saying, uh, who are we? You know, we don't, we don't, we weren't trained to deal with criminal justice or, or immigration policy or climate change. Uh, who are we to claim leadership or uh, force there? I get that. Uh, I'll tell you who we are. We're one sixth of the economy. We're a trusted 
collection of uh, very dedicated workers, uh, we have an opportunity and we can find partners. But, but if we stand aside, if we say no, we're not part of it, there's a big hole created and a lot of money taken out of play that is needed to make the better communities we want. Even if we agree with that, and I think from a health outcomes perspective and from an economics perspective, the course we are on makes no sense. We're, we're not getting the return uh, on the investment in terms of getting the health outcomes uh, we desperately need. And, and the stats are there in terms of the far greater impact uh, working on social determinants of health would have. Uh, and from an economic perspective, we're, we're breaking the bank. It's, it's not going to last and it's not going to sustain itself. The system was not, as you know, and you've used this quote often, the system wasn't designed for this. So on a system level, I, I guess my, you know, my question would be, uh, have you thought through this or had these sorts of discussions in terms of what would it take at a system level? And then uh, I, I want to sort of move to and end this part of it with you also talk about the individual level as well, which is, you know, what can I do? And I, I think, you know, you quoted that uh, the fact that the physicians have historically a low voting turnout rate. Uh, and I wonder, again, if that speaks to the issue is what does it matter and what can I do as an individual? So but first at the system levels. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, system here has at least two layers, doesn't it? There's the healthcare system and then there's the system of policy, public and private behavior in our nation. Um, we, the research on uh, national or regional or geographic population based efforts to improve health and the leadership of the World Health Organization and a lot of its inquiry here uh, arrives at something that logic would bring us to also, and that is uh, health in all policies. Nations or communities that are able to achieve greater health have that aim and then are able to recruit energies from all sectors, not just health care delivery. And that concept of an all-of-government approach, government after all pays for about 50% of the care in this country, but an all-of-government approach where the, you know, the the housing and urban development department and the agriculture department and the, and the um, veterans administration and HHS and all of the agencies. And this would apply to municipal level also need, need to kind of cluster around the population as it were, and say, how, what do we have to do together to help them? Transportation is the determinant of health status in some communities. How does the department of transportation work on that? That takes leadership presidential at the federal level and mayoral and, and city council at the municipal level, governor at the state level to say that, get around this, let's get around this table. We could have done that, for example, and have it with the opioid epidemic. There's a manifestation killing 60 or 70,000 people a year still where no one department can do it. You need, you need mobilization of an entire community and all of government to finally end that terrible tragedy. Uh, and it takes leadership to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan of that kind of systems thinking. At the organizational level in, in healthcare, just, you know, hospitals or large integrated practices, there are some pretty good models of organizations in this country and abroad that are trying to begin, they're trying to develop program, programmatic approaches to social determinants. And some of them are successful. I visited Montefiore in, in the Bronx in New York, uh, incredible programs going on there. Uh, there's really good work going on in Chicago. Uh, on um, taking investments that hospitals are making in jobs and construction and uh, supply chain and applying them to local communities. There are models. And if we get curious about it and lead, we should. Um, there's also the 
political um, footprint of healthcare. Yeah, I, I have this. Uh, if you really want, it, uh, just to show you how off the deep end I've gone, a proposal I didn't put in the paper is this: What if all of the lobbyists for healthcare, the American Hospital Association, the Federation of American Hospitals, the American Medical Association, all of us that are on the Hill all the time, claiming, asking for more money? That's what we do. Not only, but we do that. What if we took 50% of that lobbying energy and put it into a lobbying campaign by the American healthcare industry for ending hunger, homelessness, and the opioid epidemic in the next two years? Just take all that political clout, call your senators, call your representatives and say, let's get it done and we'll help, we'll help, we'll do it. We got to speak up. Individually, I mean, I'm a pediatrician. I don't no longer practice, but I was in general pediatric practice part-time for over for 20 years anyway. And you know what it's like to go to bat for a kid or an adult who has, say, a social determinant need. You are, you're out there fighting for something in the schools or fighting for something with a housing agency or fighting for something with the, you know, with the social service agencies. We need to do that. And we need to systematize that and make it part of the job and be trained more to do it, develop ways to identify these needs in our patients, especially primary care, and then have mechanisms to execute on that. So training and process at the clinical level seem to me to be potentially very, very helpful. The other individual thing is voting. I I had four, in the article I say, there's four things you can do as an individual. You can speak, write, act, and vote. Speak, write, act, and vote. Speaking is speaking. We're trusted. Writing is writing. Acting means find somebody in your, if you're interested in criminal justice, somebody else in your community is already working on it. Join them, find it. Be a doctor in the criminal justice uh, reform movement. Be a doctor in the climate change movement. Be a doctor in the, in the, uh, in the, in the movement to, to come up with just immigration policy, you can join. And then right now, between now and November 3rd, man, it is voting, 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 voting. You vote, find five colleagues that wouldn't have voted and get them to vote. And let's make this, let's get democracy back on the, on, on track by speaking, writing, participating, and then voting. You know, first of all, I just want to say you're not off any deep end. I, I think you're incredibly centered. That's the reason I'm talking to you and sharing this, uh, because I think you're being honest, truthful, objective, erudite, and humanitarian. And so I don't think you're anywhere near the deep end. I think we are, uh, as a system, you know, close to the, uh, the edge. And I really appreciate you breaking it down that way. It, it's funny, I was talking to a colleague. In fact, a colleague called me up the other day and said, you know, we want to do something in the community, these so-called community clinics for the uh, uninsured and Medicaid population and like many other uh, systems across the country. Uh, that have community clinics and, you know, they're obviously a, a great thing and, and bringing care to those who would not be able to find it in the same way. But the question was, what should the clinical team look like? And my colleague started off by saying, well, you know, we're thinking about this many doctors and this many PAs. And, and I said, you know, I think I'd start the other way. I think I'd start with uh, how many legal aids and how many social workers, because uh, in my experience, having spent years and years in the so-called community clinics, that, to your point, that that was where I, I really fell down. I tried at times to do that, but it was hours and hours. And to your point, I don't think this is a burden that the individual provider, nurse, doctor, PA, staff member could take on year after year. I think that would lead to burnout. I think it has to become part of the system, as you're saying. It has to be built into the team, starting with that level of the front line going up through the entire thing. And so I, I just, you know, I wanted to share that with you. And I love your point about the, the converse is true that 
going up to the larger part of the system that healthcare, we have to take it out of its lane, that the clinical care model, the medical care model can't do all of this. And we should be looking at other parts of government to share in health as much as we do anything else. And we have to share resources to do that, which is very hard. Your, your earlier point about the team, I, that is a terrific uh, insight, I think, uh, Zev. Uh, one way to think about it, it goes back to the kind of wonky area of um, human-centered design, I guess, might be one way to think about it. So in, in the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where I'm now senior fellow, I used to be CEO, um, you know, we talk all the time about what matters to you, medicine. Uh, this comes from the work of Michael Barry and Susan Edgman Levitan and now Maureen Bisignano, who, who have put forward this challenge. Instead of healthcare approaching patients or communities or families with what's the matter with you, although well, that is an important question, why don't we lead with the question, what matters to you? What, what are you trying to do with your lives? Uh, what's, what, what, what's your priorities? And then configure our deeds, our activities, our processes around what matters to people, one, one at a time, individual by individual. Um, it's been a very strong theme for several years now in IHI, and it, uh, it really works. I would say with respect to your team building point, it, the same applies, which is if we really want to understand how to help health arrive more holistically, we need to go to our patients in our communities and say to them what matters to you, and then have the... Um, what the innovative bias or the or the courage, the imagination to say, aha, well, if that's what you need, then we have to build a team that has the following kind of stuff in it. At Montefiore, I mentioned, for example, that, you know, the needs in that South Bronx are many, but if you go to the emergency room, I believe at Montefiore, it was true when I visited, visited it last year, the teams are always available to be called in to with respect to the need you you that they've surfaced there, it's, it's hunger. We have a food security team. If it's housing, we have a housing security team. If it's you're not getting access to the social benefits you have, it's a legal team, um, and on and on. And that ability to get ready to ask the question, "What matters?" and then respond that that would be more like what we need. Very very hard, by the way, for solo individual physicians to do that. I think this has some raises some questions about how to uh, create those capabilities. Uh, in, in very small clinical units and practices, I think it's possible. We just need intention and imagination. Uh, the idea of a team of teams, right? But literally a team of teams and calling in the specialist team for that problem. Again, to your point, what matters to the the individual uh, and their family and their needs, as opposed to uh, taking the traditional approach we've taken. Boy, I, I have so much I'd love to share with you on that account in terms of you know, even when we go to so-called the human-centered design, I, I still find that as we design, we're still in that lane of clinical, asking the person about their disease as opposed to, well, you know, they probably have 10 of the priorities that are, are of much higher importance at this moment in time than their diabetes. And, um, you know, I think for myself, if I had, I don't have diabetes, but I did, off the bat, I could name five things that would come ahead of that diabetes, at least. Yeah, and what Sir Michael Marmot's work shows and uh, there's another wonderful book just out last year by uh, Sandro Galea. Dr. Galea is the dean of the BU School of Public Health. He wrote a book called Well, just like Marmot. These are books that are digesting the scientific information, and in a in a very important way, uh, attending to what you just said, Zev, which is like what really matters to you. It does feed back into better diabetes control. Actually, the things that we're butting our heads against uh, turn out to have a a different approach, which is focus on the 
person and eventually we'll get around to health. I think that's more true than it may appear at first. That's exactly what I was getting at. I actually think it's a really, really critical reframe. You wrote uh, an opinion piece uh, called They Don't Hide from the Coronavirus, They Confront It, and it really, really warm, I think, gracious nod to the providers and staff who are uh, really putting their lives on the line and helping others. And uh, very, very touching story. This is something that's um, very, very real to you. Your, your daughter is a physician and is taking care of patients, uh, actively COVID patients. And you share this wonderful vignette at the end where you're talking to your daughter on the phone, you're calling from, you say, the safety of your home, and you ask her how she's doing. And she says to you, a little scared. And then she says, I got to go. Patients are waiting. Really, really touching. It, it brought tears to my eyes. And I want to thank you for, uh, for really this article that, that shares the gratitude to folks who are out there doing this work. You know, there's a lot we have to fix. It seems to me that what the COVID pandemic has revealed is that the system really needs to be overhauled. And as you just so eloquently and outline, uh, but I think what it also has demonstrated is how adaptive and agile uh, and heroic and courageous uh, and empathetic the folks who are actually doing the work of healthcare are. It's just a, such a stark a contrast. And I just love to hear some of your thoughts about that. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, the journalist, uh, Ron Suskind, has uh, started an organization called Bongo, B-O-N-G-O, where he's doing interviews with clinicians, just, just putting them in a relaxed mode so they can talk about their experiences. It's really worth tracking down. He had a, a lead article in the New York Times Magazine, I believe, about this. Yeah, um, this is uh, very admirable, what's going on. is The profession is just going back to its roots, which have never been lost, and, and doing the job that needs to be done at their own risk. I think what I'm more aware of now that perhaps when I wrote that Times editorial was um, the, 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 the dark side of that in the sense that the people, the, that healthcare is, is an enormous industry. It's, it's a sort of representative of the problems in the, in the society that we're part of, including inequity. And as one gets more familiar with with a greater wealth, wealth healthcare workforce, the you know the the, the people, the the essential essential workers who are cleaning the rooms and serving the food and driving the cars and and running the and driving the buses and so on, you see um, you see a problem. Yes, they're doing the work, and thank goodness they are, but they are also dying faster and suffering more. And um, it turns out that that's what I wrote in the article on the new normal that we have we've been kind of letting that entirety of the workforce down a little bit there there are there are a million healthcare workers who are getting paid so little that they're on medicaid Uh, i think there's i believe it's 1.4 million healthcare workers who have no health insurance um and uh we have to take a look inside because everything we're saying about society and solidarity and commitment and social justice we gotta start at home too and so there's some really interesting and important work to do here to, to, to recognize how many, many people it takes to have um, health care work, let alone health. And we need, we need, I think we need a renewed commitment to those people too, the home health care workers, the, 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 the salaried employees in hospitals, the people doing the transportation that we depend on and so on. We, we, we dropped the ball there. I'm sure we have, and we need to get there. My daughter, who, who I deeply admire. She's a hospitalist 
she continues to see patients, she continues to take the risk, she continues to do her job, but she also has the advantage of relative wealth, relative social security, uh, safety net all around her that a lot of people in healthcare just don't. Well, Don, thank you uh, again for just, you know, you're so, uh, I, I don't know how to say this, I mean, you're so erudite, you're so uh, academically grounded, and um, also just so honest and truthful and not afraid to really, you know, look at the reality. And I think what you just shared is I really want to thank you for sharing that and pointing that out. I guess the question with all of this discussion is how do we move and convert this to action, right? How to, how to really make this happen? I, I you know, it's um, partly, it does relate to this sense of agency, which is we can't feel helpless here. We have to feel obligated and capable and society's given we, the healthcare workforce, especially the higher paid professionals, a kind of um, special pass, a special recognition, special levers, and we should use them. We should use them. And right now, in a country that's become so deeply inequitable, in which compassion is at risk, um, in which science is at risk, in, in which investment in redistribution from the very wealthy to the very poor is at risk. We have to work on that. We have to take that up in every venue we can as individuals, in our institutions, in our, our presence as voters, and in our what we demand of our political leaders. And uh, so the one thing that it isn't going to work is silence. Just want to thank you again. And I do want to follow up with you to talk more about this issue of, of the specific actions. But I love this quote in your, in your article, Choices for the New Normal. You say that fate will not create the new normal, choices will. And I think that's just a powerful direct message for leadership. Dr. Berwick, thank you. Thank you, Zeph. It's a real pleasure. So friends and colleagues, uh, that was the interview we conducted earlier today with Dr. Berwick. I, I want to thank Dr. Berwick for taking the time to speak with us. Not sure if you heard this in my voice, but this was an exceptionally moving interview for me. Dr. Berwick is the real deal. We need more leaders of this ilk in healthcare. And for that matter, in industry and in politics uh, and government, the articles we discussed in this interview are, to my mind, seminal. They're landmark. They need to be read and acted upon. In these articles, Dr. Berwick courageously cuts to the reality of our healthcare system. He not only lays bare the truth uh, for all to see, but also calls the critical choices of our time. And even beyond that, he lays out a pathway for intention and a roadmap for action Dr. Berwick writes, speaks, and acts with intellectual integrity and originality and rigor, and with a powerful sense of empathic leadership. It's at times unsettling, uh, it's compelling, it's inspiring and motivating. My friends, as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients, I and we truly, truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our societies. Please take care of yourself and be safe. This is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.